Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of firmwide research at Galaxy Digital. We have a great show for you today. We're calling it the ZK Show, the Zero Knowledge Show. We're going to talk with Christine Kim, our friend, about ZK EVMs, the future, the holy grail of Ethereum scaling. We're also going to talk about whether that can ever be used on Bitcoin as well. It's going to be a great conversation. We're also going to talk markets with Bimnet Abibi, our friend from Galaxy Digital Trading. Um, But before we get into all of that, please refer to the disclaimers in the link on the podcast notes and note that none of the information provided during this podcast constitutes investment advice or recommendation, solicitation, or offer by Galaxy Digital or its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Got that disclaimer out of the way. Let's get into it. I actually think that was pretty good. Fairly, (laughs) fairly okay. (laughs) That's our friend, Christine Kim. Thank you for complimenting my intro, Christine. Uh, You are back. I still saying this because like it feels like you were gone. You were on vacation in Bogota, but you were back last week. So I know it's crazy, but um, you know, how's it been going? Welcome. It's been going all right. I think the New York weather is still depressing. I mean, the weather in Bogota was still amazing. Um, And also in South Carolina when when I was on vacation. You know, there hasn't been that much going on in terms of news lately either. So it's been pretty slow these last couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's been low volatility and, um, you know, some hacks here and there. There's obviously news. The industry is pretty big, but I agree. It hasn't been like a a giant news period. You know, one thing outside of crypto though, that has got me, it's got, you know what? I'm frankly upset. Okay. I, you know, I'm a new Englander at my core and Tom Brady and G- Giselle Bunchen are getting divorced. It's apparently final. I know it's been happening for, I'm, I'm sad about this. I mean, first he divorced. Why are you sad? This is someone it, else's uh, personal business, <laughs> Alex. You know, I don't think you know, like the, the, the Brady, like and and Bunchin core that we have up in New England like this was like a you know when I was literally like you know like six years old until you know 14 or 15 the New England Patriots were just garbage just terrible they were briefly almost good with Drew Bledsoe and then he got injured and and for 20 years okay we went on the most epic run and we just we just love this this player and and then he had this great family and they still are you know they're still great it just it saddens me okay he divorced from New England and now they're getting divorced also. It just feels like, you know, my my whole Patriots world is shattering still. What happens to their joint sponsorship of FTX? Will we still still see commercials with them together? <laughs> but kind yeah, of now I don't know just... if that's in the uh if that's in the, the separation agreement. Um I did read today that they're um uh, they had iron quote ironclad prenups, um, which makes sense because they're both, you know, extremely wealthy, successful people in their own rights. So there's really no need to I guess merge all their money, but I, I'm just, I'm sad about it. You know, it's just, it's something. Another thing I've been paying a lot of attention to, we're sad not going to talk a lot, but Twitter, I mean, Twitter is now a private company, right? Taken private by Elon Musk at all. Um, and gosh, it's been interesting already. He's working on though one of the most interesting problems in crypto networks, which is Sybil resistance. He is trying to fix the spam and bot problem on Twitter. By making everyone pay more. Yeah. Basically by putting a dollar amount to everything that you can possibly do on Twitter. It's true. And, um, you know, but I will say, I mean, we know this from blockchains, right? The simplest way to stop stop spam in an open system where you don't have to be permissioned um, is to charge a fee, right? <laughs> this is Simple as that. Yeah. I mean, so um, that's what he's looking at, which is kind of funny. Um, there are some interesting ideas that people have put forth around verifiable credentials, which could also help, but keep in mind this would solve two birds, uh, two two birds with one stone for Musk and Twitter, which is they also need revenue, um, and also the people on Twitter love it, so it probably would pay for it. But um, it's interesting because the people around him now, though, you have CZ, the CEO and founder of Binance, is an investor, an owner of uh, Twitter. CZ, uh, that man. Maybe, yeah, and in he's obviously you know into crypto. Elon's been tweeting about and 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 joking about Dogecoin still. Um, other people reportedly and by him <laughs> and by them um, advising him on this as a partner at A16Z, um, not on crypto, just on Twitter. And then Jason Calacanis and um, David Sachs. So you got Musk, A16Z, Sachs, CZ. Like you got some of the PayPal mafia there now. 
some crypto people. CZ, I think, offered. I don't know if he was asked. He said he would join the Twitter board if asked. Um, seems like he's asking. That um, man has way too much power. His yeah. influence in the crypto industry <laughs> and beyond is just like mind-boggling. Finance to me. is humongous, no doubt. Seven, like almost seventy or eighty percent of like total spot market. I think I saw sixty, volume. but regardless, it's something crazy. It's yeah, dominant. Um, so really interesting. And then there's this thing, mask, uh, the, uh, some way to integrate like crypto trading stuff into your Twitter interface. Um, I don't actually know a lot about it, so we're not going to talk about it today, but, um, there's just been a lot of interesting Twitter stuff happening, uh, on that front. The um, most important of which though, is that dog money is up dog as a result money? of all this information. <laughs> yeah. Uh, check out our famous report, uh, Dogecoin, the most honest shit coin, um, at dogmoney.info. All right, we're going to go deep with Christine in a few minutes on zero knowledge proofs, roll-ups, EVM-compatible roll-ups. But before we do, let's go to our friend Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Digital Trading. Bim, um, I saw Jay, Pe uh, Jay Powell. I almost said JPEG, Jay Powell. That's our friend Saul Kadir. Um, Jay Powell announced, and the Fed announced a 75-bit hike. And But there was some new language I saw in the in the text that, seem to give credence to the idea that they would sort of, um, you know, tamper their hiking in the future, in the near future, maybe not in the long future. Yes. Um, so high level, this is a phrase that I use often, I'm trying to correct, but high level, what the Fed was trying to do was communicate that they need to reduce the size of, of the hikes that they do on an ongoing basis. The rationale being that monetary policy typically works on a lag, um, and in addition, they've already tightened a lot, right? So because they've tightened a lot and because monetary policy works on a lag, they think it's prudent to not keep going at a pace of 75, but they need, so they want to essentially go 50 in December and then thereafter go, go in increments of 25. Now, the challenge that the Fed had today was communicating that in a way that wasn't taken as dovish, right? right? Because if you look at the data, there is nothing to to be constructive about from a inflation's coming down perspective. The last inflation print surprised to the upside. The uh, labor market is still incredibly strong. I, we had ADP data this morning that showed us gaining 236,000 jobs for, for the month of October, right? Uh, inflation for the month of October is expected to be 8.1, and core inflation is expected to be 6.6, which is, again, a trend high, right? So there's nothing on the data side that's conclusive that allows you to be less hawkish. Uh, but there is stuff on the research front that suggests that maybe there's, there's room for you to slow down because, in theory, like mortgage rates going up, it takes time for that to pass through into, into the real economy. But again, that's just the guess right now. Right, there isn't really a good data set to tell you that you jack rates to five percent six months from now, inflation should cool by X amount. There's nothing conclusive there yet. So they're taking a guess as to you know how long it's going to take for tight financial conditions to make their way into you know real data. Uh, but in my head, uh, the most striking moment uh, of 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 the press conference uh, was when Powell received a. Uh, a, a question that was prefaced with uh, stocks having reacted well. The, the, the reporter had not seen that stocks were actually selling off. And Powell then went on to spew out basically three hawkish points in a row. And that really talked the, the, the market lower. Um, and I completely agree with, with the market reaction, which was, you know, fixed income selling off, stocks, you know, setting new lows, et cetera. Um, in my head, we have made no progress towards beating inflation. Mm -hmm. Zero. Right. Like the anecdotal stuff that, that I see, the hard data we see, there's been little to no progress made. And so the idea that the Fed could could be dovish and that, you know, rates could rally and that stocks could rally when you're not even anywhere close to making progress is just insane to me. We haven't lost a job yet. We're still the market the job market's still gaining two hundred thousand plus jobs right. per, per month. There's been no progress made. Right. Job openings actually went up this week. It used to, people were, were talking about, oh, okay, labor market's starting to crack a little bit. Job openings declined. There's oh, more hiring. No, yeah. There's, there's, more, there's hiring. more open jobs. Uh, there's more open jobs. And yeah. so you're nowhere close on the labor market. And inflation is still eight handles on, on headline. So the Fed has to keep going. And what that means is a stronger dollar means 
higher interest rates and it means lower risk asset prices. That's been the theme all year. And I think there's still room to play for those things in markets. S&P literally just went from, you know, 3,500, you know, off the back of last CPI to 3,900, right? That's a huge move. It really shouldn't have happened, particularly in the context of big tech earnings that missed in a meaningful way with the exception of, of, of one company. So high level, again, sorry to use that phrase, <laughs> uh, inflation is still a problem. It's not going away. And the Fed has no choice but to react to the data they see. Yeah. Is there other, I mean, is that not evidence that inflation's core cause is not monetary? I mean, wouldn't, I'm a believer in the monetary. The debate in inflation is, is it structural now right. or is it transitory, right? And it becomes super structural when inflation expectations or expectations for continuingly high inflation gets entrenched in the economy, right? right? When every person... Every retailer raises prices. Yes, every, everyone asks for, for a raise money. that is yeah. equivalent to... Like, there was a labor union today that turned down a 19% increase over the course of two years in their salaries. 19%. That is more than like twice the current rate of inflation. They turned it down. All of the big consumer companies in the U.S. that reported earnings basically said... The U.S. economy is fine. We raised prices in the first half of this year, and we think we're able to raise prices in the back half of this year as well. Right. Because the U.S. consumer is that strong. I guess what I'm saying is, you know, is there nothing that, say, the administration can do on the fiscal side on on trade oh negotiations? Don't and, even get me started. Because, I mean, you know, we know that, like, inflation reared its head, uh, you know, partly, partly because of all the savings from COVID lockdowns and then all the stimulus from governments worldwide and mm -hmm. the persistent low rates and the asset bubble made people feel wealthy and all that stuff. Um, and the supply chain disruptions, right? And is the supply chain something that can be worked on? Is there, you know, we also have this war I mean, in Ukraine. So, so the it supply chains like, have normalized a lot yeah, already. It just seems like we're asking the Fed to use the bluntest possible instrument yeah, to yes. solve something that's much more intricate. And, and in particular, I mean, in, in the United States, just it doesn't seem, I'm not seeing anything from the, the federal government to actually do anything to help with inflation and They're actually inflation's counter, not being counterproductive. Right. And inflation they the inflation relief package, right? Which was <laughs> a giant fiscal spend. Yeah. I mean, California did one too. Yep. Um, and it just seems like this is, um, they're fighting the with, Fed, it's not a primary monetary policy yeah. issue. Yeah, it's not. They're not aligned. They're not aligned. I get it. We, we've got the election coming up. It'd be tough politics yeah, for uh, one, you know, a Democratic administration to go to austerity or something at this time. But do, I don't know. Do you think they might? There, there'll be some movement on this after the midterm election, at least. I mean, it seems one, like it's, they're fighting it's never it a, politically popular to spend less money. Right. Like no politician has ever like the, it was actually a Mitch McConnell phrase. Um, when I think there was a conversation with like DJT and, and him and basically he said like you're not going to lose uh, re-election because you spent too much money. Right. That's never a reason why a politician. It's one of those conundrums for Republican politicians yeah. who uh, advocate for fiscal prudence. Actually, Caesar, uh, when he Julius Caesar, when he uh, ended the Roman Republican, crossed the Rubicon and turned uh Rome into an empire immediately paid every Roman citizen a hundred denarii out of the treasury. Just here's money. Yes. Helicopter <laughs> money. Yeah. So, um, um but yeah. back to your point, there's still money that was earmarked from past fiscal packages that hasn't been spent yet. Right. Right. It's a very long process from bill passage to dollars out the door. Right. And so you're still feeling the effects of like, fiscal stuff from years ago, yeah. let alone the stuff you're, you're passing now. Right. And so even if you got some fiscal control out of, you know, whatever Congress happens to get elected, you know, now it's just not going to be enough. Yeah. Right. The cat's out of the bag. Inflation expectations have really moved, moved a lot higher and you're not getting any help from the, the commodities either. Right. Think about this. Be typically when oil prices rise, Right. You typically see demand destruction. Right. Right. Because, OK, if I'm filling up at four dollars a gallon. Right. I'm going to drive less than if I'm filling up at two dollars or a gallon. get a more efficient car or et cetera. Right. Yeah. If my heating bill is six hundred dollars, I'm going to get some blankets. You're going to get some blankets. <laughs> but what's happening now is that particularly in Europe and in these wealthier economies, 
they are buffering that by giving handouts yeah. so that people don't feel the impact of the higher energy. So the demand destruction's not happening. The so demand the destruction is not happening. And so commodity, like oil yeah. energy prices are staying bit. Yeah. And energy prices have a feedback loop into basically every other commodity and like good and service. Right. I mean, oil itself is used for like almost every single thing you're aware of as a material. Yes. Let alone energy. Yes. Um, Wow. And so, then, so that it kind of does leave the Fed as the only actual thing that can entity that can act here. Really. Correct. I correct. See. But also, but, why the market might not be responding as hawkishly as the Fed wants the market to respond. So, so my thing about the the market response is that it will correct in due time, and the reason why is interest rates. Fundamentally, I believe interest rates are the most powerful mechanism in markets. Trillions of dollars will move for. A basis point, right, or a couple extra basis points, and so b- think about that in the context of where U.S. equities are right now, right? They're implying very little to no like earnings decline for next year, right, and a reasonable multiple. Put that in the context of every other alternative. Once the Fed keeps hiking interest rates, the the minimum interest rate that you can get for taking no like duration or time risk is going to be 5% in a couple of months, right? So I can take no risk, no duration, and I can park money at 5%, right? So as time progresses, like, and you think about marginal investments, it's not going to make any sense to go into equities. And every day you go into equities, you're foregoing interest. And 5% is just the floor, right? There's other investments that are super, like, not as, like, municipals or AAA CLOs, right? Stuff that is very risk-free that yields you 6 7 8%. And so then the question is, wait, I'm getting risk-free money, low duration, versus taking all this equity risk out there and, like, thinking about a company that's valued on, like, cash flows for, you know, 10-plus years, Right. Like, why would I do that? Right. And so over time, you'll see this drain of liquidity from from equities and they will correct lower. And so that's what I'm sort of keeping an eye out for. Um, In addition, eventually, you know, earnings forecasts will have to come down. Right. The Fed needs to cause a pretty severe recession for um, inflation to come down. And if there's a severe recession, that means earnings need to come down. Right. So when you combine those those two things, you know, I genuinely think that you're probably going to see significantly lower lows in the S&P over the course of the next three to six months, right? If I'm an asset allocator right now, looking at the S&P at 3,800 and looking at risk-free interest rates at 4% and climbing, mm-hmm. I'm not touching It's kind of stocks. a no-brainer. Okay. And where does that put uh, Bitcoin, crypto, Ethereum? Where does that put these things in the mix? Because, you know, something like Bitcoin has no has no interest. It has no yield. I know. Inherent. Um, it's, it's concerning. However, I am very pleased with how well it's been trading. It's mm-hmm. been sustaining above 19K, right? Even when equities were, were breaking to, to new lows, like you, you were like in the high 18s and like you right. barely sustained it there. In addition, you've already started to see a bunch of other central banks pivot. Mm-hmm. Right. Bank of Canada went 50 instead of 75. Royal Bank of Australia is only doing uh, clips of 25. We'll see what the Bank of England decides to do um, tonight. Uh, but there are already signs that other economies, who, which are, you know, I would say more sensitive to higher interest rates, are already sort of pivoting and mm-hmm. turning. Mm-hmm. And that's generally good for, for, for Bitcoin. In addition, you know, I would say that the extent of the move you've had already is you've had a significant amount of deleveraging happen in, right. in crypto, right? Like all of the weekends have been flushed out for the most part or the vast majority of it. And so that leaves you with an absence of forced sellers, really. Right. Right. I think if you're – it also does leave you with an absence of buyers in the context of why would you own why Bitcoin right. in this kind of environment? But at the same time, if no one's selling – Right, and that's but why we've been. prices do get set at the margin, and that is why we've been range bound. And yes. I, I do think, um, uh, obviously, we've talked about why we think there's a strong case fundamentally for something like Bitcoin in this, in an, an environment where monetary policy is so erratic. Um, but other cryptos too. I mean, uh, you look at something like Ethereum. It trades really well. Moved to proof of stake. Ha, you could that argue it has a ha, yep. has a yield. I mean, I consider it like dilution protection, not an actual yield, but. 
You can it's generate a smaller yield than people have expected, though. And it's it's frankly significantly smaller than overnight money, money yeah. in the traditional markets. Uh, um, and that's true in DeFi as well, right? And that's I think partly why you've seen USDC supply come down significantly. That plus maybe the Binance yeah. thing, but um, because remember people were flocking to DeFi because the rates were high, and now when when traditional rates were low, and now it's flipped. Anecdotally, I'll tell you uh, one of the, the most. One of the most searched things on Investopedia right now is how to open a Treasury Direct account. Yeah, that's the I-bonds, right? The I-bonds, yeah. T-bills, whatever it may be. Like people, everyday people, are looking to park money in Treasury bills. Nobody's like, what stock are you buying? Are you <laughs> in this high-flying, you know, Elon name? So the Wall Street bets crowd is like opening like I-bonds oh, and yeah, stuff? yeah, yeah. <laughs> and honestly, as a, you know... Bond guy, it's, smart it's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh my god, bonds are back. Bonds, interest rates, like, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy to me. Because again, I, I said this, you know, last week when you asked me why did I join crypto, because I was literally sitting around being like, you guys are talking about negative interest rates, zero forever. Right? It made no sense A on the MMT, planet. MMT, modern monetary theory. Don't even. I yeah. mean, that stuff is so wrecked. At this, th those ideas are so yeah. wrecked. The interesting. I mean, there's so many interesting things we talk about, but like. One of these days, I'd love to dive into the BOJ and how, how screwed they are. We've got to do that. Uh, yeah. I don't think we have time to talk no, about no, Japanese no, no. Uh, yen policy right now, but we don't. Um, but it it actually that's a great story. That so oh. let's let's we'll put that on the calendar. Don't don't forget, listeners. We're gonna we're gonna bring Bimnet back. Hold us to account. Remind just, us if yeah, we forget. Yeah. We won't just bring him on for markets with Bim. We'll do a segment on the BOJ uh, with Bimnet. I think that would be awesome. Looking forward to it. Um, all right, Bimnet, ABB, Galaxy Digital Trading. Thank you so much, my friend. Christine, let's you and I talk about a big topic in blockchain scaling. This is the zero knowledge rollups, but specifically zero knowledge EVMs, Ethereum virtual machines, as they're called, ZK EVMs. Ooh, um, my favorite topic. Yeah, this is a, a big topic. It's the and you're you're the expert here, so I'm mostly going to be asking you questions. But just to set the stage, um, the scaling roadmap for Ethereum now is very focused on rollups, and we have optimistic rollups like Optimism and Arbitrum, um, which use fraud proofs, uh, and then we have. I guess what people are calling ZK EVMs, but really they're called validity uh, proof EVMs, I guess, right? Um, which use validity proofs rather than fraud proofs. And we're, I'm going to get into what that is. And most, I think, people believe that the ZK EVM is the roll-up that will drive the scalability of Ethereum in the long term. Yes. What the, the heck is this scaling. thing? Yeah, the holy grail. What the heck are ZK EVMs, Christine? So... I like to think of ZK EVMs and break it down into two different components, the ZK part and the EVM part. Got it. The EVM part of Ethereum is basically how Ethereum can be Turing complete, how it can be a general purpose blockchain. It's the virtual machine, it's the execution computer. Right, and yeah. it's the computer the first of its kind. It was launched in 2015. A bunch of developer tooling has been built on top of the EVM. Most decentralized applications, the ones that have the highest total value locked, are EVM-based. And we've seen um, a pretty big trend, even in alternative layer one blockchains that have come out, they try and be EVM compatible because they know that the EVM is the oldest and most sophisticated among virtual machines. So when it comes to how do we scale Ethereum and how do we um, try and increase the user adoption of Ethereum, one of the bets is that, well, we need to make sure that this ecosystem of decentralized applications isn't broken. We don't create an entirely new execution environment. We stick with the one that we've already made. Because it has is all EVM. this it has all this mindshare adoption. It has a moat. Um and there are others, as you said, some all L ones, right? There's like Wasm and and uh uh C C gate C Forget Seagate. I've never. There's heard a of bunch those. of them. I don't know. We're gonna get someone else to talk about the other ones. We're not talking about those ones. No. EVM has a lot of dominance in the sort of virtual machine machine usage. Right. Um, but but to scale, we need more block space, right? I mean, that's what this is a layer two question, right? We're talking about how do we what layer twos and people have tried everything, right? There's been there's been plasma and and um and uh, all types of uh, payment uh, state channels and 
and and all that stuff. But roll ups now. Yes. Maybe what is a roll up? So the a roll up very basically is taking is is abstracting away the transaction execution part of your um, of what occurs on your base layer to an off chain layer two, and a rollup essentially batches user transactions on that layer two on an off chain platform. And then it confirms down a single proof of the batch transactions to the layer one. Um, and that batch of transactions takes up less space than if you had executed so all those transactions. It's like a Merkle tree where the different pieces, tr transactions, et cetera, they all get rolled up into sort of one cryptographic proof that can be used to, to prove the validity and, um, and of all the underlying transactions. And then you only commit that proof to the layer one blockchain, right? right? So you get like a one transaction to many transactions type of outcome, um, which by the way is how most layer two scaling in, in one way or another try is what they're trying to achieve, right? Yeah. Less base layer footprint for more off-chain executed stuff. So the roll-ups though now, so then let's bring this, we'll bring the, we're gonna get to the ZK part in a second, but let's bring the EVM back into it, right? So the idea behind these then is can we operate an EVM inside the roll-up. Is that the idea? Yes. And it, the idea also is can we generate a proof of transactions that are executed through the EVM? I so see. can you prove something like the execution of Uniswap smart contracts with validity proofs? And it wasn't very long ago that Optimism and Arbitrum and the idea of fraud proofs, using fraud proofs to verify general purpose computation um, really got going and was actually demonstrated right. on chain that it is possible to have like 99% compatibility with the EVM. Um, the, the virtual machine of these other layer two networks called the OVM, Optimistic Virtual Machine, and then the AVM, Arbitrum's Virtual Machine. Um, it hasn't been that long since they've really gone up and running and it's still a long ways to go to really like decentralize and fully realize the vision behind them. But already we're seeing parallel um, research and development going into what about verifying general purpose computations with validity proofs. Right. And validity proofs, it's a lot harder. Um, there's a number of reasons behind that, but mainly the EVM was never designed for zero knowledge proofs in mind. Right. Um, and so for a virtual machine like what StarkNet has, um, that virtual machine, which is based on the Cairo smart contract programming language, that's very optimized for zero knowledge. And that's why it is so efficient. It has so much of the scaling uh, scaling benefits. Um, but I think a lot of the ZK EVM projects that I looked into in this report, they're still very much struggling with how do we map over all of the opcodes and the precompiles that exist on the EVM and make them ZK compatible. Right. So you could do something like a simple transfer. I think that was easy, right? Theoretically, in, in these rolled up, um, maybe with validity proofs, certainly with fraud proofs. But the, the challenge you're saying was, can we make general arbitrary computation possible in the same cryptographic environment, right? Like, yeah. and that's, that's really what being EVM compatible here really means is like, can we do everything we can do in the EVM inside this validity proof? Exactly. And yeah. so ZK Sync is a team, Matter Labs, um, the, the, the team behind um, the ZK Sync project, when they first launched their ZK rollup, it was specific for payments. Right. specific for types of smart contract execution, but not general purpose. But with ZK Sync 2.0, which is the um, which is basically the ZK EVM that is language compatible with um, language compatible with the with the Ethereum virtual machine, they um, it's it's something that they've they've started to work on. They've announced they actually announced last Friday their baby alpha mainnet launch, which honestly to me just sounds like it's a testnet like, launch. Um, it's kind of how you have like you used to have like seed and 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 then series A stage deals, and then they're like pre-seed, then they were like angel, then they were like pre-angel. And you're like now I don't even understand many, what like, any of these what's terms a baby mean? alpha. Like it's less than an alpha. It's less than a pre. Like anyway, but okay, they launched something. Right, but it's they're making progress. Yeah, but the progress is that a lot of the zk rollups that are live today in mainnet is specific to a certain type of smart contract transaction, like NFTs right. or 
DeFi payments or. Um, so they're not general purpose usable. Right. So they can't absorb the EVM developer mind share onto a rollup L2 yet. The total, the totality of it. No. Because that's, no. that, as you said, is the holy grail, right? Can we create now, we'll talk about decentralization of these things also a little bit because there are some trade-offs at the moment, right? In terms of even if we get there yeah. soon, but maybe let's go to the ZK part of this. What is the zero knowledge part of this? Is there anything yet? And and wh why are they called ZK EVMs? Because zero knowledge uh, proofs the concept just broadly for our audience is that you could produce a cryptographic proof that um, you could prove that something was true, such as uh, a yes, no function or in the, in the case of what they want to get to, entire general computation contract execution. Which is a huge leap, massive, by the way. Like, it, used, it used to be like, I can tell you, I can prove, for example, that I'm over the age of 21 without telling you my birthday. And you can verify cryptographically that I told the truth about that without needing to know. That's a, maybe not a great example, but not a terrible one. But it only verifies the correctness of whatever fact or truth that you're trying to right. prove. It doesn't reveal anything about the truth itself. Right. It only it is only, true, yes, yeah. no, right? Yes, if you put it. an input, you can get one out, but you and you can you can rely because of the magic of cryptography and mathematics that Math. on the fact that the answer is accurate that you receive back without needing the underlying data to check it yourself. Exactly. That's a very powerful concept for two primary reasons. One, privacy, very clearly privacy um, and people have been built, I mean, you know, as far back as zero cash later Zcash, right. Uses some of this technology. Um, that's powerful. And that's, I think a lot of people want that for a variety of things and reasons. Um, but also it's great for scaling because you don't need to see all it. What if the answer? Yes. True. True. Yes. Or no. Um, requires a lot of information to get to that, right? Well, you don't, don't need the information. We just published the proof. You can verify it was true. And the other rest of the information doesn't have to be included. And that therefore saves a lot of space as well. Yeah. Um, and verifying that proof is trivial. And I think that's one of the best, like, one. Uh, you had mentioned this, Alex, like, while editing my report, is that... Which we this haven't is, mentioned yet, but Christine has a report coming out on this very soon. So look on the uh, probably next week. So, um, but yes, that's true. Um, but that's actually like a principle that's not only limited to zero knowledge. Just generally in cryptocurrency, in like our crypto industry, one of the technologies that is used over and over, and some of the, like the guiding design principles is even if your proof generation is computationally intensive, so long as the proof that is generated can be verified trivially by anyone in the world, um, that is enough to to build like a really powerful decentralized yeah. permissionless technology. I think an iconic example of that, right, is just Bitcoin mining, right? In, and, and, and proof of work in general, right? Computationally difficult to create. You prove that you've created it, but the proof itself, the, 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 the block that is propagated is trivial for nodes to verify. Um, and I think the uh, the longest one, John Light, we're going to talk about John Light's research into Bitcoin ZK stuff too, but I think the like the slowest block to ever be verified was like, we're talking like a second or slightly under a second by a node, by a Bitcoin core node. So very fast to create, but of course, as people know about the Bitcoin mining industry, very heavy to, uh, sorry, very fast to validate, very um, heavy to create. And so, yeah, similar concept here with ZK. And one of the things we mentioned in the report is that there is the potential, we're not going to say that this is definitely the route in which like the uh, the the outcome of the ZK proving industry. But one of the pitfalls is that it will become similar to the Bitcoin mining industry, which relies on specialized hardware yeah. because the proof generation for ZK um, rollups is intensive. It's computationally intensive. And now there are methods to help uh, make that process a lot more friendly for you know average efficient and, and whatnot. yeah like recursive proving which could allow a lot of um, proving to happen in parallel um but it's i i don't think that um i think that there definitely will be like a specialized hardware market for zero knowledge proofs that is interesting um because um it's you know ethereum's just moved to proof of stake and i think there's a lot of people on both sides of this argument about whether that was good or bad a lot of uh, the ethereum community is very in favor and i frankly think that's all that really matters when it comes to you know a, a blockchain that's open and permissionless is what its users and node runners 
and developers want. I mean, that's the constituent, right? Constituency. But um, ironic, perhaps, if the main scaling route that ends up coming out of this is also computationally intensive. And you see essentially, I mean, a, we wouldn't call it a proof of work industry, but maybe a proof of proof industry, hardware industry. I mean, we're talking about, it's basically mining, it's computation. Um, but that's an aside that it, we're not close to that really just yet or anything, but it is something that's true about ZK proof creation, that it is computationally intensive. Yeah, but it made me also think about the ways in which in so many areas of Ethereum's development roadmap, a lot of the work is outsourcing Ethereum's advancements to other layers. So like with scaling and the focus on rollups, it's basically outsourcing the job of scaling to beyond the core protocol layer of Ethereum, right? And then even the job of like MEV extraction, the focus of it is like outsourcing it so that it doesn't tarnish like the, base yeah, the base layer. Yeah. So the base layer stays what? Green, energy efficient, it stays decentralized, permissionless. But I I kind of wonder, I guess, like the the purity of the chain when everything when scalability is outsourced, when like MEV extraction is outsourced, does it really matter that like the base layer is that It's an interesting pure, question. You know? Yeah, I mean, if you think about quote unquote Ethereum in total, what most people might think of it, um, are they gonna know or are they gonna care or even know that actually they were using a second layer thing that tied into the thing and like, and it turns out the totality of act, quote unquote activity on Ethereum, it, will it, did use a lot of energy or it did, it wasn't as permission or whatever, right? Whatever right, it is. exactly. You know, I, I personally, that's a great question. And I personally am fine with this because this is a, in the long run, I mean, because this was always kind of the layer one blockchain scaling view from Bitcoiners, which was don't tarnish the, the corn, you know, leave the base layer intact. And if there are cool things, um, originally it was if there were cool things that altcoins come up with, they'll be incorporated if not at the base layer, then at some other layer, right? And um, we'll get to that in one second, but I wanna ask you about the teams that are working on ZK and what the sort of status is. Um, this is what most of the world, as we said, the Ethereum world believes is the future of scaling Ethereum. You could do these things, you could do roll-ups on roll-ups, you could do many identical roll-ups, right? Like there's horizontal and vertical scaling that you can get theoretically out of roll-ups. You could have layer threes on top of layer twos. Yeah, you twos. could have a roll-up that rolls up into a into a roll-up and then goes onto Ethereum. I mean, you actually can have that. I mean, because yeah. we're really just moving proofs around. It's just moving around where the execution is happening and ultimately committing the transaction state back to Ethereum, which is highly decentralized, right? And you have total flexibility on even where data availability goes. Like that, where? That's, that's that modularity question too, right? Because you could point it elsewhere, you could get the data from elsewhere. Yeah. Um, so who's working on it? Um, you mentioned ZK Sync and Matter Labs. Mm -hmm. um, who, who else is working on this? Polygon is also working on this. Scroll. The privacy scaling um, exploration team, which is um, funded by the Ethereum Foundation, um, and then Stark, the Starkware company. Interestingly enough, as I had mentioned, their virtual machine is not, you know, natively trying to be EVM compatible, but they have a number of community-driven um, initiatives to try and create transpilers between their Cairo Solidity, Cairo Two Solidity. Um, programming so language rather than make it like turnkey compatible it's like uh, a transpiler i'm assuming means take the solidity code and have it automatically rewritten into the cairo code is that the idea uh yes yeah and so the there's a warp one of the projects is called warp but it had run into some issues i believe trying to to create that kind of compatibility between the solidity and cairo programming languages so now there's another community driven uh, project called Kakarot um, that was very recently announced. Um, so it does, I, I, I include Starkware as a team building a ZK EVM, even though that company isn't specifically building it, but I believe yeah. that their community is. Um, and all of these initiatives, I think one of the things I, I want to highlight is very contrary to the base layer of Ethereum and how development works, is not actually very open source on the layer two level. Yeah, let's talk about that because that, that was very interesting uh, when I was reading your the draft of your report. Um, it stood out. It sounds like Scroll is the only like major team that's building a ZKVM that in an open source way today. 
Um, I'm sure we've, you know, the other teams have given some commitments that, you know, at some point in the future, they'll be open source. Of course, I'm sure they say, but why is that? Why, why are they not? Um, you know, this isn't like, you know, Bitcoin and, and Ethereum, like core development is like literally done in the open, right? Like the, even the bad suggestions are made on GitHub and then reviewed and, you know, accepted or denied, right? Like the process is actually public, not just even the resulting code. Um, why is that? I've talked to a number of these teams, and the reason that they give me repeatedly is that, well, you know, we're very concerned that if we put this kind of code out in the wild, somebody will replicate it entirely and run it with a ton of bugs and exploits, and users will be um, hurt in the process. So Probably we don't. True. So we. So we won't, basically, we we don't want, we want to be good stewards of the technology that we put out in the world, and hence, until we know that we've fully verified it, audited it, it's ready for prime time, we're not going to release that code. But I personally think the bigger reason is about competition, and also about ensuring that any of the the mindshare, because all of these, most of these companies are VC-backed. It's about building um, a product and not having that product basically be be taken um, forked and yeah and ha basically having all of the revenue that you could have made off of your product uh, be prematurely like vampire attacked by another yeah yeah um, and, so and, and yeah. there's that huge race among these teams to be the first that gets there that's why you get things like baby alpha releases which is fine i'm not hating on them for this at all but i just mean like there's an announcement game at play you saw it over the summer right polygon had a big announcement splash around their thing that there's real competition here to be the like the first fully evm compatible zk roll-up and there's a lot of misinformation too about what it actually means to be a ZK EVM. What does language compatible ZK EVM versus like bytecode compatible ZK EVM really mean? And even between like not just ZK among ZK teams, but between, you know, the use of fraud proofs versus validity proofs, I think there's also a ton of misinformation around that. Not purely because of, um, I think there could be misinformation because of its complexity, of course, and the cryptography involved. But I think mainly because so many of these teams are, are motivated to tear down other teams and to try and make theirs look like, you know, the one and only true scaling right. solution for Ethereum. Um, fascinating. When do you think, um, I don't know, <laughs> I don't think anyone knows the answer to this, but I'm going to ask you anyway, Christine, when are we going to get, when is the ZK revolution coming? Um in full, I don't know what the, to your point, I mean, I, does that mean a bunch of language level? And, and, and in Christine's report, you can see she lays this out very clearly for you when we talk about these different levels of compatibility and stuff, so, which you'll read. But, um, you know, I don't know what the threshold is for the question I'm even asking, but when are we, when are ZK rollups with EVM compatibility going to be in production as that scaling uh, holy grail? I think it'll take two to three years at minimum to see these ZK EVMs at scale. Um, and I think that in that process, it's not a foregone conclusion that the ZK EVM projects we're talking about today, the five that I mentioned, will be the ones to to really reach, you know, production level capacity in those couple years. I think in the report, I, I talk about how optimistic rollups could even foreseeably first become hybrid rollups. They could have fraud proofs and validity proofs happening in parallel. And then once validity proofs become far more efficient and the proof generation complexity around making the median compatible, et cetera, et cetera, get figured out, um, slowly start to migrate more to validity proofs. Um, so I think that kind of process could play out over the next couple of years. Um, but to be fair, this timeline is is far, far um, expedited than what people had even originally thought a year ago about where we were going to be with fraud proofs, where we were going to be with optimistic rollups. Um, so this two, th two to three year timeline, even though it might sound long to listeners now, um, I would just emphasize is, is far more expedited than I think even the five, 10 year estimation that we were originally working off of when first talking about zero knowledge. And this is probably a good segue to mention the work around zero knowledge for Bitcoin because Satoshi, more than 10 years ago, was talking about how ZK, zero knowledge technology, could be used for, um, for Bitcoin.
quick break for our listeners before we dive into zero knowledge uh, roll-ups on Bitcoin with Christine. I want to share the results of our poll last week. We asked, what will be OpenSea's share of Ethereum-based NFT trading volume in one year? Today, it's 80%. Um, the winner was 40 to 60% with 30% of respondents. Um, 20% of people of respondents said it would be 80% or higher, so more dominance than today. Um, but 54% said 60% or less. Um, new poll this week, however, uh, about ZK EVMs, which we've been talking about. Pretty straightforward one. Interpret the question however you like. Who do you think will win the ZK EVM race? Polygon ZK EVM, ZK Sync 2.0, Scroll ZK EVM, or some other project. Uh, hit us up on Twitter at GLXY Research. Make your voice heard. Now let's get back to the show with Christine. So the question arises, um, could we get ZK rollups on Bitcoin? Could we get zero knowledge anything on Bitcoin, to be clear? And I think um, very unlikely to have any kind of privacy tech on base layer Bitcoin, right? Because privacy stuff is hard for um, for supply auditability in particular. So that 21 million, um, we actually know this. There was a, an inflation bug on Zcash that they patched before ever. I think they announced almost a year, if I recall. This was years ago. Um, almost a year after it had apparently happened and they'd patched it, they said that it had happened. Um, but there's no way to know whether it was that inflation occurred actually. That's because, very concerning. Yeah. Because of, because like of, of their shielded transactions. So like there, there are reasons why you don't want like zero knowledge on the base layer. I think that's true for Ethereum to be clear as well. Right. So the quite on the base layer. Right. And, um, that may not be everywhere. That might not mean that, you know, the mempool might not have zero knowledge, right? There, But anyway, stepping back, that's a bigger question. But the question is, can we have layer twos on Bitcoin? We primarily have side chains and state channels, right? With side chains like, you know, Liquid or like, you know, Rootstock or something. And then, um, and then Lightning Network, right? Is this iconic Bitcoin layer two. But the things that you can do inside a truly um, pure locally held state like lightning, right? Um, a peer-to-peer -peer network um, are pretty limited in the scheme of things. And, and there's been some tricks that people are coming up with. Taro from Lightning Labs, which uses tap tweak to encode additional data into these things. But let's be real here. Like Lightning Network is a giant dispersed network of bilateral connections between random parties. And as that network overlaps with itself a lot, then you do emerge with something you could call a network where you can actually route payments farther than just from me to Christine. Um, but there's no shared state, right? So composability is extremely limited by definition, heavily limiting the things you can do there, right? And the idea is, well, gosh, I mean, these the zero knowledge community, mostly driven by Ethereum now, um, has made so much progress on this incredible technology. Could we integrate it into Bitcoin somehow? Um, and you know, a lot of folks want to know the answer to that. And our friend, Alex Gladstein, who we had the, had on the podcast in, in August, um, who's the chief of strategy, chief strategy officer at the human rights foundation, they give grants to Bitcoin developers and, and other developers to, um, look into questions like this. And they gave one to a great researcher named John Light, and he wrote an excellent paper, which just came out a couple of weeks, or maybe a week ago, um, looking at this question. Should, first of all, what are these things? And second of all, should we, um, are they good or bad? And then should we incorporate them, them into Bitcoin? What types of benefits and would they bring and what trade-offs are at play? And then um, what would we have to do? And, um, it seems, and I, I, he's, he worked on this for six months and is much smarter about it than I am certainly. And so I'm going to paraphrase his, uh, his, uh, findings rather than sort of, you know, necessarily co-sign them as my own, although I've reviewed it, um, quite heavily. So, um, we need some, some changes at the base layer. They're not dramatic. I think you need something on Bitcoin called recursive covenants. And so covenants are, um, when you attach um, basically payment conditions onto Bitcoin payments in the future. So for example, I 
tell you, Christine, here's some Bitcoin, but the Bitcoin you receive has these conditions on it and says you can only do certain things after a certain amount of time or whatever, right? And um, BIP 119 and I think 118 also, they're much more pared down versions. They're like covenants light. That's what had been proposed um, by Jeremy Rubin. And, um, and those are really powerful ideas separately. It allows you to do weird, awesome, complex custody things, the self-custody level. Um, but you need a, a way for the UTXO to know that it needs to stay inside this rollup mm-hmm. for a period of time. Right. And then you need a method for the Bitcoin holder on the base layer to remove the UTXO from the rollup at some time if they want to exit the rollup, right? And that one UTXO, that's the where you need the covenants to be working because the UTXO has to be spent into the rollup, but basically be able to be unspent out of it later. Um, so that's a change. And I don't know... I don't think any real deep, deep work has been done on researching whether that change can be what, what's fully required to make that change on Bitcoin. And can it be done in a backwards compatible fork versus a non-backwards? So a hard, can it be done in a soft fork versus a hard fork, which is loads of research go into questions like that. I mean, people didn't think SegWit could be a soft fork and they figured it out. That's true. But could recursive covenants be the first hard f- reason for a hard fork on Bitcoin? <laughs> I mean, I, I, um, there, by the way, just before I answer that question, there, there could perhaps be other needs, a couple other op codes on Bitcoin to make this work. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, but I am very bullish on this concept of ZK rollups. Um, I love the for scalability, for though. scalability. We, and we didn't talk about this with Ethereum, but there, there is no ZK. That's why you're saying validity rollups, validity proof rollups. None of the current ones on Ethereum yet actually have the privacy part of this, right? No, none of them. So that's yet further down the road to be figured out. Yeah. And, and in fairness, I mean, privacy I think even on Ethereum base layer right now is mainly enabled by applications like cryptocurrency transaction right. mixers on top of it. But I'm sure that there's also like other ZK rollups like Aztec right now that's a ZK of a ZK right. rollup and then you can get privacy. Um, but I guess on the question of then if, you know, Bitcoiners are looking at ZK rollups for scalability. To be honest, I also want it for more features. I mean, I want to be able to do stuff, quote unquote, on chain. And, you know, I happen to think that Bitcoin has better long term settlement assurances than Ethereum. So why can't I roll it up onto Ethereum? I mean, onto Bitcoin, right? I mean, that that's I think a lot of people have that question. We know this is great scaling. We know that now what features go into it can be everything, obviously, at the roll up level can be determined. Right. And but also at whatever Bitcoin were to add at the base layer could also inhibit or allow um, various features, right? Like we could make, because it's not an, there's no virtual machine, right? Yes. So we have to figure out like, and and frankly, they could be much more limited. Frankly, they may not be able to be significantly more. um, It's not a question of like virtual machine compatibility because there is no Bitcoin um, virtual machine, basically. But the concerns around adding ZK to yes. Bitcoin in the paper, he mentioned so many of the same negative externalities as what Ethereum faces, which is MEV. Right. I forget what the other one. It was like A AIC or yeah, something. Yeah, AIM like attacks. Um, and I mean, there's a, there's a variety of of them. There's some specific attacks he identifies um, that could cause things. There's like there's also like a you could like do a DDoS attack pretty well. Like by flooding the 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 roll up with like a bunch of junk that makes it like prohibitively uh, too time uh, take too much time for nodes to then validate the block that contains the validity proof like from the it whatever. opens up a whole can of it worms. Does. There's and, a lot. I mean, I think that Ethereum Ethereum in trying to be a general purpose computer world computer it has to open up this these cans of worms for trying to achieve scalability, trying to achieve, you know, general purpose computations, have a virtual machine. But my question is, does Bitcoin need scalability? And in my opinion, I think Bitcoin does. I think Bitcoin in its current form, if it realizes its vision as the world settlement layer, it's going to break under the pressure of just everybody every you know state trying world state like government trying to use it and if 
Bitcoin needs scalability. I think it's so concerning to me that there's no clear path right now of like how Bitcoin is going to scale. And I think it'll try and have to answer a lot of the same questions and a lot of the same struggles that Ethereum is currently facing now. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think Lightning is pretty good for what it is, but I think that thing is relatively limited in the scheme of things. Like does Lightning In a scale? decentralized way. I mean, it, can, it scales better if all the major nodes are run by businesses than if they're all run by people. Um, and that doesn't really get me where I want to go when it comes to decentralization long term. Right. Um, but it is good. I mean, I should be able to, I love the idea that at any time um, you can open up a channel with someone else We can and we can just pass payments super fast. I mean, there, there's it's not that there's not big benefit to what Lightning has done. Um, and frankly, like Bitcoin, like state channel development has gone significantly farther than anyone else because the Ethereum community abandoned it looking for this basically. Right. So like right. they already looked at this and moved past it because you can't, there is no shared state. You can't really build a virtual machine there. Right. That's why. Um, and it's not great decentralization. It's not great. It's it, 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 but it's sort of like whatever you want it to be. And that is great. It can be very decentralized. It, if you think of it as the lightning network with like, you know, capital L capital N it's not super decentralized. Um, and it's, in my view, not likely to be super decentralized. But again, it's a thing that anyone can just spin up at any time with any sub-network or directly. Like, So it's not really fair also, I don't think, to really criticize it for that. Mm. But it doesn't get me where I want to go for decentralized scalability long term, I don't think, at, at a huge scale, at a huge scale, right? Um, but Do you might, think Bitcoin needs that in its future? I'd certainly like to explore it. I mean, because like I said, that's the other interesting thing. Like if we're doing stuff in these other environments, like, and, you know, Ethereum becomes kind of like, like, honestly, ancillary to say a lot of people's usage of quote unquote Ethereum, because they're really doing it inside of ZKR. And it's just really a matter of like where this, this, the state is committed to. Right. Well then I, 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 like I said, I would like that state and a lot of times to be committed to Bitcoin um, and so I, and I think others would also, if you could do, I mean, this could allow you to do more with Bitcoin. Right. And I think that that is a really interesting concept. I mean, I, there's a lot of other people who also think this and, um, I just, what, what the issue I think primarily, I mean, is it, 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 it does require some change to do this on Bitcoin requires some changes and they, we haven't done the work on that. I don't think any Bitcoin developers have done a lot of work. There's uh, to actually like scope out what a, like a BIP would look like to implement this. Really, that's what I mean. Yeah. There's some good conception, conceptual thinking out there, but. Like this paper. Yeah, like this paper. And, and, and there's a couple others that have looked into it, but. But can you imagine? That would be a lot. Can you imagine, Alex, if the modularity vision of all these, um, of all this thinkery that is happening. Can you imagine <laughs> if at the basically in a couple of years time, the modular vision is completely realized. And actually Bitcoin and Ethereum start to compete as settlement layers. Because yeah. for like the longest time, it's always been Ethereum and Bitcoin aren't competing. They have different use cases. But if this modular vision is completely realized, then I actually do think that Ethereum and Bitcoin's, their, their primary use case is a settlement. Yeah, I mean, I think so too. I think that, which is funny because that's that again, like this kind of goes back to the whole layered scaling debate, which Bitcoiners promoted, which is that you do all the weird stuff you want to do somewhere else <laughs> and you just commit back. Um, and to be clear, you can do that today. You can do, I mean, this is what like the Omni Network kind of did this, right? Like you, you can commit data to Bitcoin, but like the question is, can we commit a cryptographic proof that gets verified uh, by the Bitcoin network also? And thus keeps it like decentralized and and you know lowercase tethered to Bitcoin, right? Um, that is what validity proofs are trying to accomplish, um, and and I don't think that you can do yet on Bitcoin, and so and not really fully on Ethereum, right? And we're not there yet, even for. But it would be funny to your point if we come full circle on this yeah. because the Ethereum community like went down the same layered scaling vision that Bitcoiners had proposed. And have maybe found this holy grail, although we're still really early days, it seems like. Um, but then let's say they do. And then it's like, well, hmm, I got this holy grail, but maybe I should. Somebody's like, well, should we bring that back to Bitcoin? Like, it's kind of funny. <laughs> should we make this full circle again? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's very interesting. I mean, I, I don't think it's a near term need for Bitcoin, but it, I do think it should be a big. There really isn't a long term Bitcoin roadmap for software development. And 
you know, some argue that's a feature, not a flaw. I'm not certain it is um, a feature. And um, if there is one, I feel like this should be on it to figure out at least step one, figure out if it should be on it. Um, but have those conversations. I hope John Light's paper, uh, you know, really gets those going. Um, it's very good. Um, and we'll try to link to it in the show notes. All right. That's all we've got. It was a great conversation. Thank you, Christine. And um, and Bimnet Abibi, as always, our friend from Galaxy Digital Trading. That's it for the show this week. Everyone have a great weekend. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Galaxy Brains. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. If you enjoy the show, please like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To follow Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email, read our content at galaxy.com research, and follow us on Twitter at glxyresearch. See you next week.